But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flesh, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, we've had a, a wonderful morning, haven't we? Just being reminded of the great promises of God and also hearing from Ellie and Josh as they've declared their trust in the Lord Jesus and the new life that they have in him. As we uh, return to the Bible now, we're going to continue that, that whole question of new life in Christ, but we're doing it as we think about death and the future and the implications of the promises of God when we face up to death. Now, I just want to say at the start as we get into this that we all hit this topic, you know, the uh, facing our mortality, with different issues going on for, for us. So some of us um, uh, are in grief right now because of the death of people we love who are close to us. Uh, there may be some who uh, have received news fairly recently about uh, life-threatening illness that they have and are asking these sort of questions 
so I, I just get the fact that we hit this from different angles. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to point us to the promises of God that I think uh, sustain us and are critical for each of us as we face up to this topic. But just aware, we're all, we're all arriving at different points. So let me pray as we, uh, we dive into this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who makes uh, promises. You're a God who gives us clarity when we face uh, big issues, uh, such as the one we're facing today, the question of uh, death and what happens when we die. Father, we pray that we'll have clarity around your word, but also security and confidence in your care and love and authority as we face up to this, uh, this really fundamental question. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think overall, uh, Australians by nature, we're cynical in life and euphemistic when it comes to death. Cynical in life, euphemistic when it comes to death. So in life, uh, we're pragmatic, uh, we tend to be direct, realistic, and we'll call a spade a shovel. We have no trouble doing that. That's just the nature of who we are. But, you know, when it comes to death, I think it's our... And nature as a nation to tend to avoid the topic. So when was the last time you know you're at a dinner party or a uh, you know some sort of celebration? There was a a lull in the conversation, you know, that sort of gap, and someone said, "I know, let's have a discussion about death and dying." Right? Has that happened recently to anyone? No, it doesn't. Like that's just not the way uh, we function or we roll. And yet it's interesting, isn't it? Because death is actually fairly common. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, it statistically it's, it's universal, but it, we're surrounded by it in a regular way, even though we tend to hide it. You know, we put it in hospitals and behind, you know, uh, crematorium walls and that sort of thing. But it's a reality that we're just not comfortable overall facing up to. So let me ask you this question. What, what do you think... What do you think happens when you, you die? Let me stress this in a slightly different way. What do you think happens when you die? Uh, because I'm pretty confident it's going to happen to you. So what do you think is going to take place? When we uh, look at, say, cinematography, it's interesting, isn't it, that films generally portray uh, this sort of event with a lot of vagueness. Someone dies and you see some sort of spiritual apparition emerge from the body that hovers over the scene, watching everything that's going on and the people that are happening while they're looking on and seeing, seeing their body there. It's, it's a bit vague. And my experience is as I... You know, one, of, one of the things I do fairly regularly is take funerals, and at funerals there can be a real vagueness in the language that people use. You know, the person will always be with us. It's a very common phrase at funerals. And you, so how will they always be with us? What does that look like? We are, by nature, I think, euphemistic. And maybe there are people here today with diverse views. Maybe some believe in re reincarnation, or maybe, like a lot of Australians, uh, you might think that when you die, that's it. You know, death spells the end of everything. Or maybe you think there is something that happens, but you're not quite sure what it is. What happens when we die? Kaikain Christians, we believe that Jesus was raised by God from the dead. 
Uh, that's the reality. And that, in and of itself, is an extraordinary event, isn't it? I mean, imagine you know, someone dead for several days, dead dead, you know, who then rises up to life again. An amazing event. But what I want to say to you is, it's not a spectator event, at least not alone. It didn't happen so we could go, ooh, and applaud and go home. Right, what I want to explore this morning is the connection between Jesus' resurrection and what happens to us. And they are connected. The Bible pulls them together. So let's do that. I want to turn initially anyway to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because this is the issue that the Apostle Paul takes up with the Corinthian believers. So 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12, Paul says, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and let me say the Corinthians believed this was the case, Christ had been raised from the dead. So he's saying, if you believe this, you do believe this, Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So when he's talking there, he's saying, not think that the rest of us who believe in Christ won't be raised from the dead. Like, how, haven't you worked this out? Those two things are connected. If you trust in Jesus, it has a profound impact on what happens to you when you die. He goes on, verse 20, he says, But Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, this, this uh, first fruits idea is a farming sort of picture. I can't grow anything in my garden, so I feel totally out of my depth on this one. But I do understand what's being, being said here. It's talking about, let's say you're, a, you're an apple orchardist, and so you've got apple trees out, out in your paddock, and you're observing these trees, and then you see the first apples actually come out on the branches uh, for the new season. They are the first fruit. And the farmer knows at this point that all things being equal, there's going to be a stack more apples that will turn up in due course. They will follow this first fruit experience. That, that's the point here in 1 Corinthians 15. What God has done for Jesus, he will do for those who trust in Jesus. You see the resurrected, resurrected Jesus and you see your future. That's the picture. So from going back to the analogy, the farmer doesn't see the first apples coming out on his tree and think, I wonder what the rest of the fruit's going to be like. Maybe it'll be watermelons or strawberries or bananas. Right? The farmer doesn't do that. It's an apple orchard. He's got apple trees. What God has done for Jesus, he will do for us. That's the point that's being made. But the obvious question to ask is, how is that possible? I mean, how does that work? Over the years I've sat at the bedside of enough dying people uh, to observe uh, them deteriorating, their emaciated bodies sometimes riddled with cancer. How did they get raised back to life again? Well, that's the issue that Paul looks at from verse 35 from 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but someone will ask how they're dead raised. Now, with what kind of body do they come? Fair question. 
How does this work? Notice Paul's response. He says, how foolish. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. What will your resurrection body be like? Most often when I talk to people, they, they sort of think about the body they've got sort of with improvements, you know. So uh, when I get raised from the dead, I hope I'm a bit skinnier, you know, or I hope I'm a bit stronger, or I hope I have more shapely legs, or I hope I have abs of steel, you know, six-pack. And, uh, you know, like those sort of pictures are often the way in which people think incremental benefits. But think with me about the analogy that's being used that we've already referred to. What's the connection between a seed and a plant? So I'm going to throw a picture up on the screen. Seeds. Anyone know what seeds they are? I'm not a, I can't grow anything. What sort of seeds do you reckon they are? Someone at nine o'clock said pistachios. What do you think? They're orange seeds. Just in, well, I, that's what I've been told they are. I wouldn't know really, but the orange seeds, okay? Now I want to show you the next picture. An orange tree. Now put them together. Isn't that interesting? Like, who would have guessed that the thing on the left would turn into the thing on the right and the seed would actually transform into the plant? But that is the picture that's being presented here. At the resurrection, God is not going to drag your body out of the ground, dust it off, make a few running improvements and send you on your way. That's not what we're being told here. You won't be a new, improved seed. That's not God's goal for you. There'll be a connection between your body now and then, a definite connection, but it'll be profoundly different. It's interesting, isn't it? When a seed becomes a plant, it's actually fulfilling its destiny, isn't it? Where, where was the trajectory of where it was meant to go? And it's the same for us at the resurrection. We'll be raised, if we've trusted in Jesus, raised to all that God intended us to be. Perfect for the new creation and dwelling with God. And in fact, that's what we'll come back to next week, thinking about what that might look like, the shape of uh, our future dwelling with God. But you see the development spelt out in verses 42 to 44 of that same chapter. The body that's sown is perishable, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonour, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. See the contrast? Raised to never decay or die, a glorious body, a powerful body. What do you think it means when it says to be raised a spiritual body? Look with me again at verse 44. It's sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Yeah, do you think this is where the sort of disembodied, hovering spirit idea comes from? So there it is. It's not actually talking about um, what our bodies are made of. It's actually talking about the source of their power. So if I ask you to imagine with me, to think about 
a steam train, okay? I don't know if you're good at conjuring up pictures. I want you to picture in your brain a steam train. Now, I guarantee none of you actually have thought about a train that was made of steam, right? You actually thought of a train that was powered by steam. That's exactly the point being made here. We have bodies in this world uh, that are powered by the nature of the world in which we live and the way we've been created. But in the age to come, we will be powered by the Spirit of God. And that is the, uh, the driving source of who we are and suitable for that new age. Okay? Resurrection from the dead. I want to change gears a bit now and ask a question I think that so commonly comes up. And that is, well, when do you get this uh, resurrection body? You know, when does is, when is this, this actually happen and take place? When Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, uh, he was writing to a very young church, first generation after Jesus' death and resurrection church, and they were wrestling with questions about this. When do we get our resurrection body? The particular reason they were asking the question was because they'd expected the return of Jesus and before Jesus returned, some of their friends had died. So they were asking the question, well, what, what's happened to them? Because we know that when Jesus comes, we all get our resurrection bodies. What's occurred for them in the meantime? And I think it's a question that, that uh, believers today, even though we've had 2,000 years to work it out, we still ask the same sort of questions. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, this is what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So where are they? Where are those who sleep in death? Heaven? It's interesting, isn't it? Now, hear the answer that Paul gives. Verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He doesn't say heaven. He says fallen asleep. And then when Jesus returns on the last day, we looked at that last week, raised. Now, sleep, this is actually the language that's used very commonly throughout the New Testament. So back in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, if we look at verses 18 and 20, you see the same description is used of those who've died. So what's asleep? I mean, what are we thinking this means? Is this um, some sort of, uh, you know, spiritual cryogenic snap frozen thing? You know, when, and when Jesus returns, you sort of get popped in the microwave and away we go. What, what is going on at this point? Maybe it's some sort of um, coma or what's, a, what's asleep? Where are the dead in Christ now? Just as relevant for us. It's interesting. I want to take you to a few other spots in the New Testament that reflect on this sort of question. If we go to a place like Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul at this point is in prison. He's not sure if he's going to be executed. And he makes this comment. He says, I desire to depart. He's not talking about going on a trip. He's talking about dying. Right? I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Just a couple of verses earlier, verse 21, 
Paul again says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or if we went to Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus at this point is on the cross. Uh, He's dying. He has two thieves being crucified with him. And he says to one of the thieves, today you will be with me in paradise. Today with me in paradise. I want to suggest to you that uh, believers who die before the Lord returns in glory, they enjoy fellowship with Christ at the point of death. And that they are in a better place, a better situation, because they are with Christ. Better, but not the best. You see, the best is to be with Christ and his people in our new resurrection body, in the new heavens and the new earth, and that will occur when Jesus returns to wind up the history of the world. And what I want to do next week when we come back is think about the nature of life in the new resurrection body, in the presence of God. What shape does that take? Okay, I think that is the way in which the Bible speaks about it. What I'm going to do with just the few moments that are left to me is to think about how this, this knowledge of the fact that we are being going to be raised from the dead, how it changes our attitudes, our thinking and our convictions and what we invest in. Okay? Can I say, first of all, the resurrection, uh, the promised resurrection from the dead, it changes our attitude to our bodies now. We live in a time in history and in a particular location here in Australia where we have never been so fixated with our bodies as we are now. Right? Extraordinary. Their shape, uh, their fitness, their size, their health, the way we decorate them and clothe them, uh, the language and literature around body image have just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied in recent years. Uh, we are very self-focused on what we look like and the nature of our bodies. And the thing is, our bodies have never been in better shape than what they are now. Uh, back in 1960 in Australia, the average age of mortality in Australia was 71 years of age. It is now, 50 years later, 83 years of age. Isn't it extraordinary that we're living 12 years longer on average in a 50-year period? But it speaks about the health and vitality and the treatments that we apply to our bodies. But knowing about the age to come, knowing about the resurrection body that we will receive, knowing that we'll have a body that is... It'll put this one into the shade. It does change the way in which you think about this body in this world. It gives you perspective. Now, let me say, I think it's appropriate to care for our bodies and to pay proper attention to the one that God has given us. Uh, Primarily, not so we're comfortable when we look in the mirror in the morning, but in order that we can use them to serve and bless the people around us, it seems to me that's the reason that we actually take care of what God's entrusted to us. But you need to keep remembering that it will be superseded. 
And I think for anyone under the age of 25, this is just a freaky idea. You know, like, I am immortal, I will live forever, and I quite like the body I've got. Well, you know, I'd like to change a few things, but, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to get your head around it, but all of us actually need to do it. You need to do it as you face the prospect of decline. You know, you probably won't... I used to, do, I used to be a gymnast, right? I could run along and do backflips all over. Can you believe that, right? It's impossible to believe now, isn't it? You know? But I could. I'm not lying. Right? Most of you are in that situation. There are things you used to be able to do and can't do now. There is sickness that you will face. You will deteriorate. Um, all sorts of things will occur to you and your bodies. But here is the thing. In the new age, you will receive a resurrected body with none of those frailties or tendencies, or tensions. Knowing that that is true affects the way you think about your body now. We need to keep mulling it over. It also changes the way in which we think about death. The way we face our own death, and also the way in which we grieve. Um, I had the great privilege uh, back in August of this year of taking Julia Walton's funeral. Julia had been a member in this, uh, this church for 50 years, and a number of you I know knew her quite well. Julia had uh, pancreatic cancer. She knew she was dying, and that happened over a period of months and years. What that meant was she could prepare for her funeral. Uh, she was a single woman, so she thought it made sense to be organised. She prepared a draft of her service and gave it to our office so the, the leaflet could be prepared in advance. She was a teacher, she was well organised. So she gave it to the office, they typed it all up uh, and then she proofread it. Julie used to proofread all our uh, leaflets on a Sunday uh, for many years. So she proofread her funeral service and discovered a mistake which was uh, corrected. Uh, she was also so well organised that she prepared her own eulogy um, she wrote it in the third person for someone to actually read out uh, on the day. Well, the in interesting thing in this funeral, I knew Julia well, she'd left a whole lot of notes, not the funeral service itself, but notes about the way she wanted her funeral run. And this is how she explained uh, the fact that uh, she prepared her own, own eulogy. She said, I don't want people going up the front with endless reminiscences. Right? She wanted it to be short, sharp, and punchy. At the end of her eulogy, Julia, in the third person, said this. Julia's choice of a plain pine box, that is for a coffin, seemed to her to represent the depleted state that her own mortal body had reached because no polished casket, however elaborately decorated, could possibly represent the glorious body that she was confident would be hers in the resurrection. Julia had no fear about death. She didn't much like the process, quite understandably, but she did have a wonderful anticipation of the resurrection and the body that she would receive. Can I, um, can I ask, do you, do you have confidence in the face of your own mortality?
a settled hope in the promises of God. It also changes the way in which we grieve in the face of death. It's not that if you trust in Jesus, you don't experience grief, but it is profoundly shaped by the resurrection promises. Again, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, You do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Uh, Yes, we grieve. Of course, we grieve. Death is hard to watch. It's difficult to see the decline. It's difficult to experience or observe someone else's pain. Uh, It's hard if there's an accidental death and suddenly the relationship is wrenched apart in that way. We know grief is real. But friends, what a difference it makes to have secure hope in the promises of God in the face of death to know the promises about the resurrection that shape that grief. Again, come with me back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. See, for those who trust in Jesus, we are talking about a glorious future and a temporary break in relationship. That's what we're talking about. And finally... uh, If you're living with the the resurrection in mind, then you're living it with it in mind now, not just for the future. Uh, What I'm saying is it's it's not an insurance policy truth. You know, you take out insurance policies in order to cover yourself for the potential of something happening in the future. So I have household insurance because if thieves break into my home, I can claim on the policy. So it's in the event that that happens. That's the sort of idea. The the resurrection and the promise of being raised certainly has that sort of future perspective that is a promise for the future. And yet, I think the New Testament teaches the profound impact that that truth has on your life in the very present. It's more like an investment policy now because you know you are going to be with the Lord for all eternity with your resurrection body, and you say, what will I do now that fits with that trajectory? That's actually the way the New Testament teaches most profoundly on this topic. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, it actually speaks about one way in which the resurrection affects us now. It says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. You have a body now that God has given you. That body will be transformed by God for the new age. Therefore, you ought to live consistently with how God intended you should use your body now for him. That's, that's the reality. So we heard Ellie and Joshua just before, and I don't know if you listened to the sort of things I was saying, 
but they pledged allegiance to Christ now in the light of all he had done for them. That's what we're talking about. Anyone who's a follower of Jesus says, this life I have that is guaranteed into eternity is a life I want to live for you now to honour your name. If you're aware of ways in which you are dishonouring God in your life now, can I say, repent and change. Uh, Don't live inconsistently with the truth that you have been called into now and for eternity. And then Paul takes it a step further at the end of the chapter, verse 58. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. There's so much in this world that we labour for. Our labour for in these bodies that won't endure into the age to come. Wasn't it a lovely testimony that we heard? Uh, before I became a Christian, it was all about me. All about being top of the class. All about the car. All about the house. All about the job. All about things that if you invest in in this world, you know you will not take into eternity. Right? And Paul talks about those as being in vain, vanity, a puff of wind just disappears why would you want to invest in a puff of wind but he contrasts that doesn't he he says give yourselves fully to the work of the lord what's this work of the lord Uh, in the light of the resurrection uh, paul is saying this work of the lord is what promotes the lord jesus christ in this world to others That can take lots of forms. Um, The way in which you connect with people who don't trust the Lord, so you might commend the Lord to them. It involves praying for those people. It might involve teaching in our children's program. It might involve doing any number of activities that are designed to point people to the reality of the promises of God, both now and for the future. It affects how you invest in your money. You know, do you invest in profoundly in bricks and mortar that you you probably won't take that with you you won't take it with you or do you invest in the lives of people who will come into the kingdom who you will take with you you will share eternity with them see Paul the Apostle is saying in the light of the resurrection give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord do that in whatever way you can Because that labour is not in vain. And that's a labour we do now with eternity in mind. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you make wonderful promises to us. You give us forgiveness and life and hope uh, now. And yet, Father, we're so thankful that you have promised clarity for the future. We we trust you for it, but we know you've spelt it out. Uh, for us, you've guaranteed it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that these truths will profoundly affect us as we think about the future, but also as we think about now, that will shape our lives accordingly, and that you and your kindness uh, will keep helping us to have these, this hope living, active, growing 
in our minds and our hearts and our activities, that we might labour, do the work of the Lord in this world and see you honoured and glorified in our lives. And we, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.